0: This is the Pulse Podcast, and I'm Jeff Frost. I am a second-year resident in physiatry at UBC and your host for today. Tyler is away enjoying the wonders of Europe, so I am piloting the podcast solo. And today we're tackling taxes. We're going to find out about why they're changing in Canada and how those changes will affect physicians in Canada. It's going to impact all of us, including our fellow residents. To get a sense of how these things might work out, I've asked Paul Adamniuk, an R1 in physiatry to tackle taxes with me. I caught up with him in my favorite local cafe. Paul, thanks for meeting up to talk taxes. For you, what's the pull? Why talk taxes?
1: You know, Jeff, um, I spent the last few months noticing my Facebook notifications, my Twitter notifications, my WhatsApp groups, and even my email inbox blowing up with commentaries about these tax changes. Every day seems like there's a new opinion, or even a new rule from the federal government. It's super controversial right now, and with all the different things I'm hearing from everywhere, it's also ridiculously confusing.
0: Before we start talking about the new changes, I think it's worthwhile to hit the books and look at how we got here. Paul, do you know much about how we got to this point?
1: I remember hearing about taxes and positions back in the 90s when I was still rocking the diapers, I heard rumors of a brain drain that was causing Canada to lose physicians, and that somehow tax changes made a difference to the rate that physicians were leaving. But I honestly can't say I'm that familiar with it.
0: As a full-time resident, I was a little worried you wouldn't be able to provide us with a history lesson. Thankfully, I've sent our intrepid reporter, Kat Porter, into the field to gather some info. Kat's a second-year psychiatry resident at UBC who's done some digging around how we got here. I caught up with Kat on the seawall to tackle taxes. So Kat, what'd you find?
2: Well, Jeff, I found some surprising things.
0: Kat, before we get into the cool things, can you just give us a quick primer? What is incorporation and why would I
2: incorporate? So pretty much when a physician incorporates, they turn themselves into a small business. You go from being a self-employed physician to a small company that provides medical services. In Canada, we provide medical services to the province. So by incorporating, you're able to bill the province for the medical services you're providing. Small businesses pay less income tax than individuals, so therefore by incorporating, it allows you to pay less tax and keep way more of your earnings.
0: Huh, that's brilliant. I mean, you get to keep more of your billings. That sounds like a surefire path to financial success. Was everybody doing this? Were all doctors incorporated?
2: That's a really great question, and the answer is no. Incorporation is beneficial, but also has its drawbacks, like paying for things like accountants and lawyers, so incorporating only makes sense if you earn a certain amount of money. Recently, most people suggest that you should be making more than $250,000 to get the benefits of incorporation. So if you're not making that 250000 doesn't really make sense for you to incorporate. Another reason that some physicians don't incorporate is because they're salaried. So for example, our pathologists who work in our major hospitals simply can't incorporate because they're employees of a bigger company. So those are the two main reasons that everyone isn't incorporating.
0: Oh, that's, that's interesting. So these tax changes won't really affect everyone. But I mean, back to those of us that will be affected... If we're incorporating, we're keeping billings by decreasing the amount of money we pay in taxes. No government willingly gives up tax revenue. What's the deal?
2: I'm really glad you asked, because Paul was right. There is a historical context that explains why physicians were encouraged to incorporate, and, as a result, pay less tax. It's different in each province, but here in BC and in Ontario, it's pretty similar. The Ontario case is most known, so it's the easiest to discuss pretty much back in the night in the late 1990s and early 2000s the ontario government couldn't pay for services that the ontarians wanted one of the biggest budget items was healthcare delivery and physician fees were a big cost within the healthcare delivery as a result the government just stopped increasing physician wages no inflationary adjustment
0: what no inflationary adjustment that basically means you're getting paid less every year
2: it's actually worse than that The financial situation became so bad in Ontario that the government began taking back billings from physicians. At the end of the year, they would apply a percentage to all billings in the year and demand a rebate from the physicians.
0: What? They asked physicians to pay them back for work that the physicians had done?
2: Exactly. It's like a factory demanding 5% of a worker's wage back at the end of the day because they pretty much realized they couldn't actually afford to pay the workers 100% of the wages they had promised.
0: (laughs) Wow. That's nuts! I didn't realize things were so bad. But I guess that brings up what Paul mentioned. This financial chicanery had an impact on the physician workforce, I imagine, right?
2: Oh, it definitely did. We saw physicians leaving provinces that were enforcing these measures for provinces with more financial incentive. Doctors also moved to where the jobs were, which included the states. At its peak, approximately 1% percent of all the physicians were leaving Canada per year for the U.S.
0: Wow. I mean, 1% doesn't sound like that much, but I guess it was enough to matter?
2: Well, that's a little unclear. There are plenty of academic resources that argue both sides. Some say it impacted care delivery and some not so much. All the frontline physicians that worked in the 1990s that I've spoken to said that the financial belt tightening had a big impact. But once again, it's not super clear. Huh.
0: But regardless of whether or not there was actually a material impact on care delivery, provinces felt this brain drain was an issue and they responded, right?
2: Yeah, for sure. Provinces like Ontario started reminding physicians that incorporation lowered their tax burden and pretty much amounted to a pay raise. They were basically saying, look, We can't keep up with inflation, but there are rules in place that will basically give you money and you should take advantage of them. The catch 22, of course, was that the tax savings largely came out of of the federal level. This allowed the province to have no physician pay increase and no decrease in the tax base. The physicians were happy because a lower tax rate essentially meant a pay raise. Everyone left the table happy, well, except for the federalities. And here's the problem. Our current colleagues have built up their retirement savings on the idea that incorporation was available to physicians. They've planned their entire financial life around the idea that physician incorporation is beneficial and available to them.
0: Oh, I I guess that explains all the anger I've seen on Facebook. It's not so much that the tax rate is changing, but their entire financial plan and how they thought they were going to get into retirement could be completely disrupted by these changes. This isn't an argument about a 10% change in the tax rate this year. This is an argument about how you get to Freedom 55.
2: Exactly. See why I was surprised?
0: This is bigger than I realized. After getting my mind blown by Kat, I reconnected with Paul. So Paul, you've heard Kat talk about how important incorporation is to physicians practicing today. But what do you know about incorporation? What advantages does it bring to you as a resident?
1: Well, like Kat said, it all comes down to taxes. Incorporation allows you to pay a corporate tax rate, which is less than your personal tax rate. So overall, you pay less in taxes, but that money goes into the company's pocket, not your own, and these are not the same thing. To get that money into your pocket at some point so you can pay down your line of credits, pay for gas, and if you have anything left over, maybe buy some groceries. And you need to pay yourself a salary from the company. The math gets a bit tricky here, but basically, if you pay yourself a large salary out of your company, the benefits of being incorporated start to decrease. The benefits of incorporation only really matter if you want to leave that money in the company, sort of use it as a piggy bank, as a way to save for retirement.
0: So the company acts as a piggy bank for your earnings. It lets you split up your earnings from one year over many years. And since that takes one year of high earnings and splits it up into many years of lower earnings, you end up getting taxed less.
1: Exactly. And that deferred earning really helps us catch up with pensioned employees. As doctors, we can't just sign up for the teacher's pension plan or some other large company's corporate pension plan. And those pension plans really help people build towards retirement. And you know, as much as I love the wards, one day I need to replace this stethoscope with a squash racket. But having your company hold the money, you get to save for retirement.
0: Oh, okay, okay, so this is neat stuff. But there's no way you learned that by yourself. Where did you pick up all this knowledge?
1: That is very true. Okay, so I went to the Resident Doctors of BC tax clinic that ran recently. And they covered a ton of background about this and what incorporation is and what the sort of nitty-gritty details that it provides to physicians that were kind of a black box previously. When I was there, I spoke to uh, Bobby Ning. He's the managing director and co-founder of Financial Literacy Incorporated, a company that helps employees at Vancouver's largest hospital get their financial houses in order. He also went through some of the tax changes with me in depth and really helped me get my head around them.
0: Oh, that's, that's awesome. So you got a consult on your own financial situation. But, I mean, what made you do it? Do you have some financial worries at hand?
1: Uh, yes. As a, as a resident, I've got this big line of credit that makes my bank statement pretty depressing to look at every month. It takes a lot of money to get through medical school these days, and a six-figure debt is something I actually never even imagined I'd have. So I was worried about finances. I figured the clinic could help. At the same time, there was also a lot that I didn't understand about the tax changes, how they affect residents, is this going to change, what it means to me to incorporate when I get done. My biggest worry is missing out on ways to pay down my debt and to start building for retirement right when I get done residency.
0: Yeah, I, I get it. I mean, it's all a big unknown. I've got that big six-figure debt too. Uh, it's enough financial worry to keep you up at night, and we've already got pagers doing that for us. But like you said, it, it has had a big impact on us. As residents, we carry a massive debt load late into our 20s. If you're like me, it's going to be late into your 30s. So what were the things you learned from Bobby?
1: Okay, um, so to begin with, he talked about what the major components of these tax changes are. First, the government is limiting our ability to income split. So that's um, paying family members to either do something for your practice or not. And uh, the second one is there's going to be a couple of caps on how much money you can save or make inside your company.
0: Uh, income splitting? What's that?
1: Well, I was a little bit confused about that too, but um, fortunately Bobby had some insight into this. So for
3: income splitting, they're just being more clear with more rules revolving around how much you can income split with your spouse, for example. The rules there are there, but it doesn't mean that you can't still do it. So you just have to be able to justify having reasonable job duties that needs to be taken care of. So the income splitting was to be still allowed. It's just that in the past, a lot of people may have income split a lot more money that is not reasonable. So it doesn't really take away from your situation today because you're starting out for something that you didn't know you didn't have in the first place. So if you do it correctly going forward from now, then you still would be able to income split. But now there are more rules around it.
0: So in the past, physicians were splitting their income between themselves, their partners, and maybe even their children. This resulted in them paying less taxes. So I guess changing the way we split income seems like it will disproportionately affect physicians that have a partner at home helping to manage the house and kids while one partner is working.
1: True, but that does actually seem like an unfair advantage. What about the nurse at work whose partner doesn't work and stays at home to raise the kids? They don't have that option and they never did. Why should we, as physicians, have unfair access to a decreased tax burden? And I think it's important to note that I think income splitting is still an option for us so long as whoever you're paying is actually involved in the practice to justify receiving an income. I think there's just a test of reasonableness in place now.
0: I mean, I I guess that is a really good point. There is an element of perceived fairness to these tax changes that we can't ignore We rely on our public image as physicians when building trust with new patients. Things like income splitting, even though they were offered as a way to increase our compensation by previous governments, they kind of undermine our trustworthiness in the eyes of the public. But like Bobby said, for us as residents, we won't even notice this change. It'll be gone before we even knew it. Uh, it's, It's a shame that this specific change led to so much mudslinging in the mass media Uh, when, as Kat explained, income splitting was really the government's idea in the first place.
1: Definitely. And I mean, at a certain level, that's the part that kind of bothers me the most about this whole process. The way the issue of income splitting was presented, it portrayed physicians in Canada as like systematic tax evaders and not paying their fair share, rather than just using a tax strategy that governments actually promoted them to use. Uh, this approach by the government actually pitted the general public against doctors, and I think at one point even the national nursing organizations came out as and against physician stance.
0: Yeah, that's true. You know, I, I wasn't really that bothered with these tax changes, but it was the way we, were, we got portrayed in the media that made me most uncomfortable. Um, but, you know, that's enough about our feelings. Cat isn't here to help us anymore, and there's only so much millennial the internet can handle. Uh, so what did Bobby say about other big things, like that second big change, the one where companies are taxed based on how much you save within them?
3: So in a corporation in BC,
0: if you earn
3: up to 500000 net of expenses, business expenses, you would enjoy paying 12% corporate taxes. Anything over the $500,000, you are in the general tax rate, which is now 26%. So the idea was that the government simplified it by saying the first $50,000 of passive investment income you earned would be, would be fine. Any dollar earned after would reduce your small business limit by $5. So if you basically earned up an extra $150,000, that would reduce or eliminate your small business deduction of 12% and you would be paying income on all the active income that you're earning at
0: 26%. Okay, so that was a boatload of information. Paul, I I know as a high-functioning resident, you got that all on the first pass, but you're going to need to break it down for me. First of all, what is passive income?
1: Okay, um, well, uh, keep in mind I am an R1, so the high-functioning is a great compliment. (laughs) And uh, that's a good question. Passive income just means any income that you've made off of savings that have been stored in a company. So say you had $50,000 that had gotten paid into your company and you hadn't paid it out to yourself or employees or anything else and you decide to invest it in the stock market through the company. Things go well down in New York and then you end up making a 10% return on the money. You've now earned $5,000 off of that investment that was in your company. That $5,000 is passive income. The actual definition and the details about this get a bit more complicated, but for us it's safe to say that any money made from the proceeds of stocks and bonds can be considered passive income.
0: Okay, gotcha. So it's the proceeds, it's not the actual money. That, that's cool. And I can only make $50,000 of this passive, passive income at most in a year. Uh, so like, how much will I have in savings if I'm making $50,000 a year in passive income?
1: Gotcha. So let's clarify this a little bit too. You can make more than $50,000 off of that passive income, but it just changes the rate at which you get taxed. Besides, if you want to actually make $50,000 a year off of your passive income, you'd have to actually have a ton of money invested through the company in the first place. So, for example, if you say had 5% return on some investment that you'd invested in through your company, you'd actually need to have a million dollars sitting in your corporation to gain that $50,000 a year off of that investment.
0: Okay. I mean, like a, a million dollars sounds like an absurdly big amount of money to someone like me who has a six-figure line of credit. But is a million dollars really enough to retire on?
1: Yeah, that, that's a good question, actually. I mean, it keeps on seeming like you need more and more to handle for retirement. And I actually asked Bobby about this.
3: Well, it goes back to my three bubbles I always talk about. There's essentials, there's lifestyle, and there's your estate. So, if your essentials, your life, you know, being food, shelter, clothing, is, you know, it's will most likely be taken care of. We wouldn't have to worry about that most likely today. Um, it will be the lifestyle expense that will really drive whether or not that amount of money that you're saving is enough. So, a million dollars today for some people it is sufficient, but depending again what your lifestyle is going to look like, then we would have to look at your situation.
0: Bobby seems pretty clear there, the days of using your corporation as your sole means to save for retirement are sadly probably over.
1: Very sad. Well, with all things taxes, it's complicated. What's for sure safe to say is that now without some careful financial maneuvers, these new taxes will definitely complicate how we use our professional corporation to save for retirement. I think to make it work, we'll need to make use of some of the other options like RRSPs and other forms of savings. So definitely not all is lost.
0: Okay. I mean, that that's good. It's good not to lose everything. But earlier you mentioned being able to earn more than $50,000 a year in passive income, but it will somehow impact your tax rate. What's that all about?
1: Yeah, uh, good catch, Jeff. So... Before we talk about tax rates, it's important to talk about what medical corporations are. Uh, Today, personal medical corporations are considered small businesses. And that's not just a political soundbite. In Canada, small businesses are legal entities defined as any business that, after expenses, so things like paying your lease, paying your medical office assistant, or paying for supplies, earns less than $500,000 a year. So let's take a dream scenario where you bill $550,000 a year, but it costs $75,000 to run your medical clinic. Your after-expense income is now 475000 So the government considers you a small business and you're only taxed at that 12% rate. But if you step even a penny over that $500,000 line, you lose your small business tax rate. In British Columbia, small businesses are taxed, like I said earlier, at about 12% on income after expenses. But if you no longer classify as a small business, you'll be taxed at 26%. And importantly, this applies only to the income over $500,000. So if you make $500,000 in $1, only that $1 sees the 26% tax rate.
0: Okay, okay, I think I'm following this. So medical businesses are small businesses. And we need to keep our earnings under a certain threshold to remain small businesses. That all makes sense to me. But again, how does this relate back to passive income?
1: Right, and that's where things get even more complex. And don't worry, we're almost to the tough part, so just bear with us. Here's the general idea. At some point, your combination of passive income and billable income might be high enough that you no longer qualify as a small business. And as a result, the amount you can be taxed will go up. What the government has done is put in a sliding scale, and this is the crux of the tax change. And what that sliding scale is, is the ratio of passive income to billable income that you can make before you make too much. For example, if you make $500,000 post expenses in your business, you can make up to $50,000 in passive income, like we talked about earlier, and you're still a small business. Your billable of $500,000 is taxed at 12%. But let's say your passive income goes up to $100,000. Now you've crossed the line and you're no longer a small business. Now your allowable business income is only $250,000. So that 500K that you built, 250,000 of it gets built at the small business rate of 12%. But the remaining 250,000 gets taxed at the big business rate of 26%. So if you're still with me, let's make this even more confusing. Let's stick with a passive income of $100,000. But now you decrease what you bill down to $250,000. Now you're under the magic line of $350,000 in this case, and still considered a small business. So everything is taxed at that 12%. If this all sounds confusing, don't worry, it is. And we'll post a graph of this in the show notes. But the take-home point of this, with the sliding scale... Your limit of what constitutes a small business is actually a moving target. It's made up of your passive income plus your after-expense billable income. And as a practicing physician, you'll need to find a way to stay on the 12% side of the line if you want to minimize your tax burden.
0: You know, Paul, I have three degrees and my head hurts. But thank you for dragging me through that. I think I'm going to take a, definitely gonna have to take a look at that graph, though. But I I just like one question about this sliding scale, if anything, it seems to help physicians that save. I mean, because there really aren't that many of us that can bill $500,000 a year, but there's plenty of us that can bill over $100,000. So if I'm only billing like $150,000, will I be able to increase the amount of savings in my small business?
1: Yeah, so I think that's a good point. Um, what we're talking about is, let's use an example of 200000 So if you bill $200,000 and that's your after expenses, what you take into your business, you're actually eligible to generate $110,000 in passive income per year. That's a lot of money. So to generate $110,000 of passive income, you'd actually need to have $2.2 million invested in your business that's just generating passive income for you, which is actually a pretty big amount of money. And you can do that without activating any new tax increases. Oh,
0: okay. So, I mean, I can still stay a small business so long as I bill, you know, what might be reasonable for most most physicians, and uh, I, I still get to save a lot. So this really isn't all doom
1: and gloom. Definitely not. I mean, there are some options with the changes, and, you know, Jeff, who knows I might actually be able to pay off my line of credit.
0: <laughs> oh, if only. One day. I guess it really on un- it just hinges on how much you bill. So I'm, I'm guessing this is going to affect different specialties in different ways. Uh, Did Bobby have any insight there?
1: Yeah, he definitely did.
3: The way I look at it is that if your specialty allows you to earn more than
0: $500,000, then that will affect you. Never happier that I did not match to Optho. Apologies to all the Optho residents listening. (laughs) But I mean, hey, Uh, the other thing that I heard a lot of concern about is how this is going to affect maternity leave. Any chance you have any insight on that,
2: Paul?
1: You know, I don't, and I also corrected in the show notes. You definitely missed one of the H's in off those, so we'll have to apologize again to our off colleagues. And uh, I actually managed to ask Bobby about the maternity question as well.
0: In my defense, ophthalmology is hard to spell.
1: <laughs>
3: well, good news is it doesn't. You can, it's still a way to store money in your corporation, and when you do plan to use it, you would draw it out at that time And when you're in a lower income tax bracket at that time, you pay lower taxes as well.
1: I think the important thing to point out here is that there is no real physician maternity leave. We aren't like nurses in the hospital or a mechanic at a car dealership. If we don't bill, we don't get paid. So when female physicians take time off for a baby, they don't get paid. End of story. There was a lot of justified fear that any tax changes might prevent physicians from stashing cash in their professional corporations to pay for time off for maternity leave. But the changes that will be implemented in the end won't have major impacts on young physicians early in their career. The changes affect our ability to retire, for sure, but most female physicians thinking about pregnancy are, by biological necessity, younger, and as a result, haven't hit that magic $50,000 limit in their passive income just because they don't have enough sitting in their corporations to hit that amount. So they can still use a company to spread out one year of earnings over multiple years of time, which gives them the option of working hard for a few years and then taking the time they may need to raise their children. So putting this all together, there
0: has got to be a bottom line. It sounds like we're going to make less money.
1: Is that true? I I can't bring myself to answer this, so I'm going to hand it off to Bobby.
3: Technically, they shouldn't reduce too much of your take-home pay if you live a moderate lifestyle. I think if you live a moderate lifestyle, for example, if you're able to live on your resident income, for for example, then you should not see much of a difference. If your lifestyle and your expenses exceed or far exceed what your normal lifestyle is today, then that will have an impact.
0: Uh, What was that about living within our means?
1: Uh, Well, the real key to financial success, no matter what you make, is you should spend less than that. SNL actually did a skit on this. It was remarkably on point, and Bobby had some thoughts too.
3: But we're looking at, obviously, being frugal, now being more aware of your spending. That's really what it comes down to. Uh, we, will, we definitely want you to enjoy spending and enjoying your life, and this is where being more aware and financially literate about how you spend and how you save becomes much more you know,
0: impactful in terms of how much you can enjoy your life. Uh, So putting this all together, this really doesn't seem like the 8.0 earthquake social media made it out to be. I mean, for sure, our retirement as physicians just became a lot more expensive. But it sounds like the changes might add like five years to your working life. From reading Facebook posts, I got the impression that I was adding 50 years to my working life.
1: Yeah, you're right. The walls aren't falling down. If I ask myself to think about this the way some of the doctors did 30 years ago during the brain drain and they were looking at this decision to go somewhere else, would these changes be significant enough to force me to leave Canada to practice somewhere else? Probably not. I mean, I may make less if my business investments take off, and uh, my wife may have to actually work for the practice if I want to and, and play her. But Overall, the reasonableness test seems fair, and the passive income rule will probably not significantly impact the majority of practicing physicians, though some of our higher-earning colleagues and higher-earning specialties may feel this. For sure. Uh,
0: I mean, while these rules are definitely going to affect us, they don't seem like the game changers everyone made them out to be. Uh, I mean, I guess we can go back to ignoring our lines of credit and just get back to focusing on our pagers. What a joy.
1: I'm not sure which one of those is worse, Jeff. (laughs)
0: If you've made it this far, thank you very much for listening. I know taxes are a bit of a dry subject and they can be a little heavy for something like a podcast, but I sincerely hope you learned something today that can help you moving forward. Now that we're done with the content of the show, it's on to the business and administrative side of things. If you remember from last week, we have three sections where we go over items important to residents. So first up is our consults pending, where we talk about issues that residents have brought up to the resident doctors of B.C., and they're things that we're currently working on as your representatives. So to begin with, we're aggregating data from our resident surveys, and that data is really important because it's going to inform our upcoming negotiations with the provincial government as we look to secure a new employment contract. So thank you to everyone who filled out those surveys. It's really going to help us moving forward. We're also working on improving membership discounts for useful services for things like car shares, healthy food services, stuff like that. Should be good things. And beyond that, HEABC, which is the provincial body we negotiate with for our contracts as resident physicians, has asked a group of 30 residents to attend a half-day session to discuss future compensation. So that's a big first step in our upcoming negotiations for a new contract. Moving on from consults pending, we have Signed Off, which is where we talk about accomplishments that resident doctors of BC have has made in the past few weeks on your behalf. So big thing for Signed Off, uh, we fixed the error with the economic stability dividend. As you may know, we are supposed to receive a 1.4% increase on our pay. For whatever reason, it never happened, but thankfully resident doctors of BC has gotten to the bottom of it and you should be getting that massive Massive pay increase sometime in the near future. Um, And we also have managed to secure some new travel discount codes for BC residents during LMCC exams, CCFP exams, and Royal College exams, care of our friends at WestJet. Feel free to check check out our website for more information. And lastly, we have managed to set up a new funding policy which has been approved for residents that wish to... uh, Organize sport related activities. The first sport that got funded was badminton. So, if you and some friends have a great idea for a sporting event that all residents could attend and it, you could use some help with funding from resident doctors of BC, feel free to contact us and let us know. And last but not least, we have our upcoming events. On the 14th of April, the res- resident badminton social will occur. And on the 21st of April, we have the UBC Medicine 13th Annual Art Show. So if you're interested in attending either of those, again, check out our website. And one final administrative note, the offices of the resident doctors of BC will be moving over the Easter long weekend. So if you're looking to visit the office for any reason, please know that our new address is Unit 350 at 1665 West Broadway Street in Vancouver, British Columbia. So that about wraps it up. For the administrative details of this show, I'd like to once again thank you for listening. My name is Jeff Frost. I was the host today. I was also the producer and editor for this podcast, and I also helped write the script. I got editing help from our two guests, Paul Adamiuk and Kat Porter. If you're a resident in British Columbia and want to be featured on the podcast, get in contact with me through Resident Doctors of BC by emailing podcast at residentdoctorsbc.ca. Our music today was all used under the Creative Commons 3.0 license. Uh, in order of appearance, they were Blue Circles featuring Sea soul by Unreal underscore DM, Falling by Siobhan Decay, Summer Trip by Tagolio, Waking Me Softly by DJ Yegor, and once again, Summer Trip by Tagolio. I guess I really like that one this week. And of course, a very special thank you to Bobby Ning and FLC Inc., for helping us understand taxes. We couldn't have done it without you guys. And uh, I have to fess up. Any errors, in fact, are of course our fault. Not Bobby's. So, catch you next episode. I promise it will be more fun than taxes. Thanks again.